I'm sure probably most of you have heard why I was here for a week and then gone for a week. Carolyn's father, uh, Dick Hansen, passed away in Wisconsin, and so we had to go back last weekend for his funeral. Um, people have expressed their condolences, which we very much appreciate, but um, Dick was 105 years old. He was three months shy of 106 years old, and until the last two months or so of his life, he was living at home, um, and uh, he died peacefully, without any pain that we're aware of, and so we are very grateful. He also loved Jesus, and uh, he is, uh, again, I'm, I'm sure much happier uh, right now, absolutely, than uh, because being 105, of course, everyone he'd ever known had died, and uh, he, he felt that loneliness some, I think, and so we are very grateful that the Lord called him home when he did, and uh, we look forward to seeing him again. So that's why I was on here last week. Two weeks ago, I had started a sermon series that I entitled Aliens, Strangers, and Reformers. The motivation for that series, <clears throat> because of the trip Carolyn and I had taken previously, and I had been praying about what, what I needed, what you needed for me to preach when I came back, and I really felt as though there were a number of things that were happening in our culture today that I felt I, I, I wanted to respond to from a spiritual point of view. Particularly, as I said two weeks ago, there have been an, any number of times in history in which God's people, first the Jewish people and then we later as Christians, have either forgotten or simply ignored God's commands in how we live our lives. It's always more fun to preach sermons that are uplifting and fun and cheery. Uh, I consider doing a Father's Day sermon today and thanking all the fathers, but I really feel as though the Lord's laying it on my heart to deal with some more prophetic kinds of things. And so I want us to talk about some things over the next weeks. I believe we are again, as has happened in the past with the Jews and Christians, we again are in a time when um, many, perhaps even the majority of Christians in the West have given themselves over to values that are favored by our culture, but clearly are contrary to what God tells us in his word. Whether it's how we handle money and material possessions, how we deal with our fears or our lusts, our relationship with family and friends, or how we think about and treat foreigners and strangers. All of these are things that are clearly addressed in scripture, but in which we as a culture have generally taken our own direction along with the rest of the crowd, and frequently that is away from God's will for us. So today I want to speak to one of those issues, the last one on the list I just read, how we treat foreigners and strangers. Again, I spoke briefly to that two weeks ago. But I want us to look at what God's Word specifically tells us about how we are to perceive and respond to foreigners in our midst. This obviously is one major topic in our world today. There are an estimated 230 million foreign immigrants in the world today, in every Western country especially. In the United States, the foreign immigrant population accounts for about 13.5% of our whole population. But interestingly, that's a number that is going down. It's been going down th since 2007, and it is nowhere near the, the highest level which the United States experienced, which is back in the late 1800s, where we had um, over 15% of our population was foreign immigrants. But despite the slowing of this trend, the issue of how to handle foreign immigrants has become a major issue, especially in Western Europe and the United States. Apart from any governmental or political issues related to foreign immigration, the question I'm asking is what are we as Christians 
supposed to think and feel about this issue, remembering that we have a different set of standards than the world has. We have a different set of rules that we are supposed to follow, which the rest of the world does not follow, in fact, does not understand. Scripture calls it a kind of foolishness. But we have the standards given to us in Scripture, in the Bible. And so what does that tell us? To answer the question of how we are to think about foreigners and strangers, I want to look at several passages of Scripture, both from the Old and New Testament, to give us a perspective on how God, and specifically how Jesus, wants us to act toward foreigners. The first passage I want us to look at is from Exodus 22, with the addition of a collateral verse from Exodus 23. It tells us how God feels about foreigners. And so this is the word of the Lord. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. Let's leave that up there. These verses, which are presented in the context of the giving of the law, you will notice they are from the book of Exodus when the law is being given through Moses from Mount Sinai, is very clear on how God feels about foreigners, those who are away from their homeland, their home families, and are in a place where they don't have a support structure. God says very plainly here that foreigners are a special class that are to be protected in the same way that widows and orphans are to be protected. And God adds for emphasis the point that the Israelites should be especially solicitous to foreigners because they know what it's like to be foreigners. They themselves have been foreigners in Egypt. In fact, the Jewish people through most of their history have been foreigners in a foreign land. They have not lived in their original homeland, the promised land. That changed in 1948, of course, but through most of the Jewish history, they have been forced to live somewhere where they were the foreigners. God adds for emphasis to this point uh, that the Jewish people should be sympathetic, and just as the Jewish people should be sympathetic toward foreigners because they have been foreigners, it's obviously the same thing. The same thing can be said about us. If you are from Canada or the United States, unless you are Native American or First Peoples uh, descendants, you, your ancestors were foreigners in a different land. All of us came from somewhere else, again, unless you're Native American or First Peoples. We, at least our ancestors, have been exactly in that place of being a foreigner. And all of us today, here, right now, unless we are Mexican by birth, we are foreigners. We are guests in another country. We came from somewhere else. We have made our homes in this new country, this new land. We are all foreigners. And so, as God points out here, we should have sympathy for foreigners in the same way that we have sympathy for widows and orphans. Not my words, his. Well, that's all well and good, you might say, but who's supposed to pay for all this generous hospitality that we should show toward foreigners? The answer, quite simply, is that God's people are supposed to pay for the cost of caring for the foreigners. This truth is given to us in the second passage I want us to look at, which is from Deuteronomy 14. The book of Deuteronomy is the second telling. Deutero means the second. After the first generation of Israelites, because of their lack of faith, died in the desert, the law was retold to their descendants. So this is the second generation of people who came out of Egypt. Egypt. 
after the Exodus, who are being given the law again, and that's what Deuteronomy is all about, a retelling of the law. And in Deuteronomy chapter 14, starting with verse 28, we read this. At the end of every three years, bring all of the tithes that you're, uh, of your produce um, and store it in your towns so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows will live in your towns, may come and eat and be satisfied and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Again, this is quite clear. There aren't any complications here. The tithes and offerings of God's own people, which when Deuteronomy was written meant the Jewish people, today it includes us as Christians. The tithes and offerings of God's people are to be used to feed and care for widows and orphans. The Levites, which were in effect the ministers of their day, they were the tribe that were not given land, but they were told that they were to be the ones who, who maintained the religious system. And the foreigners... This passage concludes after telling us that our tithes and our offerings should go towards supporting these groups, including the foreigners. It goes on to add a condition. It tells us that we are to do this. We are to provide for widows, orphans, ministers, and foreigners, quote, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. This is a conditional statement. Do you want God to bless you and your efforts? Do you want success in your endeavors, whatever they may be? Then God tells us here that you need to be generous. I need to be generous. We need to be generous in caring for the needs of widows, orphans, ministers, and foreigners. So according to the Old Testament, foreigners are to be seen as a special class alongside widows and orphans who were not to be oppressed or mistreated. And in fact, we as God's people should willingly give to make sure that they have food to eat and a place to live and that they are cared for. So what did Jesus have to say about this subject? Let's look at a well-known passage in Luke 10. I'll start with the first few verses here, 25 to 28 of Luke 10. And this reads, I'm having trouble reading that from back up here, so I'm going to use this piece of paper. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what, do, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. I want to stop there for a second because these first few verses sets up one of the most popular, well-known parables of Jesus. But there are a couple of points I think we need to notice here. First, this is concerned with what Jesus elsewhere in the New Testament called the first and second greatest commandments. To love the Lord your God with everything you have and secondly, to love your neighbors as yourself. So this is critical stuff. This is top of the list of the things we need to concern ourselves about as being followers of Jesus. In fact, it is so critical that Jesus says, do this and you will live. And when he says you will live, he doesn't mean you will physically live because the question that was put to him by this teacher of the law was what must I do to have eternal life? That was the original question. 
So Jesus has just said, loving God and loving your neighbor are the qualifications for eternal life. Basically, we love God, and then we love our neighbor. But these are both critical. Jesus said, if you love me, you will follow my commandments. And this is one of the commandments, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Actions will not save you. Loving God and accepting Him through Jesus Christ will. But if you have done that sincerely, if you meant it, then your life will reflect it. And that's what this is about. Love God and love your neighbors. The passage goes on, verse 29. But he, that is the teacher of the law, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, and here's the popular parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured on, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him. He said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law said, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now first in this passage, you will notice the very real and very human attitude of this questioner, this teacher of the law who wants to limit his obligation. Tell me the bare minimum that I have to do in order to get by. All right? Give me the short list. Who is my neighbor? Verse 29 says it's because he wanted to justify himself. In this case, he wanted to be able to say, oh, I think I got it covered. I think I'm, I'm okay. I'm doing that. But Jesus, when this man says, who is my neighbor, punches the biggest hole imaginable in his expectations. He tells this, one of the best-known parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. In fact, this story has become so common that most Christians, I believe, don't understand the meaning behind it anymore. Samaritan has become synonymous with a person who does good deeds. You know, there's even the Good Samaritan organization. If you've ever had an RV, you probably were a member. And the idea is that you help one another. Well, Samaritan does not mean that in the first century Jewish context. In fact, we've lost entirely what the Jewish listeners would have heard in the first century when Jesus started talking about a Samaritan. The road between Jerusalem and Jericho that Jesus refers to here was in Judea, which after the time of Solomon had been the southern kingdom of the Jewish people. In the northern kingdom, after the kingdoms were split in two, which was called, confusingly, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Israel in the north had turned away from God. They were completely apostate, and so God had sent the Assyrians, the horrible army of the Assyrians, to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. They carried the people off into captivity. They forced the ones that were still left there to, to take care of the land, to intermarry with others. Um, it was a real mess 
Now, in Jesus' time, the area that had once been the northern kingdom of Israel was called Samaria, after the capital city of that region. And the people living there were called Samaritans. To be blunt, the Jews of Judea, and Judea is where we get the word Jew, and in Judea and also Galilee, up at the Lake of Galilee, which was also Jewish, in between those two was the land of Samaria. And the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other with a passion. It wasn't just a dislike. The Jews would, if they're going from Galilee to Judea, Jerusalem, for instance, or the other way, they would cross the Tiber, the, uh, the Jordan River and travel Transjordan, go way out of their way in order to have to even keep from walking through Samaria. The Samaritans, who had originally been Jewish, had intermarried with non-Jews. Originally they were forced to, and then it became common. They had then changed the Jewish religion and the Jewish Bible to suit their particular needs. For instance, they added an 11th commandment. The Samaritan Bible has an 11th commandment, which says that it's also okay to worship on Mount Gerizim, which is right next to Samaria. So the point is, the Jews saw the Samaritans as being impure in their blood. They were interbred. They saw them as heretics in the religion, and these two groups hated each other. In this parable, Samaritan might very much be like a, uh, is very much a foreigner in Judea and a hated foreigner as that. It would be comparable to the attitude that many Americans might take toward an Iranian Muslim who is in the United States. Different religion, different breeding, different background. I don't like it. But when two Jewish religious leaders in this parable, a priest and a Levite, walk around the man who has been beaten up by robbers and refuse to help him, along comes a hated Samaritan. And this hated foreigner helps the Jewish man. He bandages his wounds, he takes him to an inn, he pays the innkeeper two days' wages, that's what a denarii was, he gives him two days' wages to care for the injured man, and he promises that he'll come back that way again and pay anything else that's needed. This, Jesus tells us, is what it means to be a neighbor. The hated, heretical foreigner, who may very well have far more compassion than God's people, God's religious people have, and this is the neighbor that we are supposed to love. The one who comes from somewhere else, the foreigner, the immigrant, the one with different breeding and a different religion, no matter what our government or our culture says, that person is our neighbor, the one we are told to love. Because we have a different standard, not based on suspicion or fear, or concern that foreigners and immigrants might take something away from us, job, money, whatever it is, but based upon love and grace and generosity and welcome. This is what Jesus is teaching. And finally, and I don't have this passage on the screen because I've talked about it so much, I hope some of you have it memorized, in Matthew 25, beginning with the 31st verse, Jesus tells the parable of the sheep and the goats. And in it, and we've talked about this often because this is kind of the commission that we have for our outreach ministries in this church. Jesus said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. 
I was in need of clothing and you clothed me. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. All of those are parts of our ministry. But right in the middle of this list, Jesus also says, I was a stranger and you invited me in. The word stranger here in Matthew 25 is the Greek word xenos. It literally means foreigner. In fact, the word we have for xenophobia is fear of foreigners. Jesus tells us that inviting in the foreigner and caring for his or her needs is one of our most basic obligations, along with feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, clothing to those who need clothing, caring for the sick, and visiting those in prison. We are to invite in and care for the foreigner if we are truly to be one of his followers. And this passage is a frightening passage in Matthew 25. Because similar to the statement that God will bless us if we care for those in need, widows, orphans, foreigners, in Matthew 25, in addition to all those other things, those who care for foreigners and the sick and the hungry and etc., Jesus says of those who do these things, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. That is the gift to those who will do these things, including welcoming in the foreigner. But to those who will not do these things, to those who will not feed the hungry, to those who will not invite in the foreigner, Jesus says, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Do you not think this sounds important? Jesus tells us that our eternal salvation or our eternal damnation is based upon whether we loved and followed him. And that love, whether it is real or not, is determined by how we treat people in need. Simple as that. And that particularly here includes whether we show hospitality to foreigners and immigrants, no matter what anybody else says. No matter what government policy is, no matter what our culture says, no matter what our fears might tell us. Now as a church, we are making efforts right now to care for the foreigner and the stranger. We are doing outreach to immigrants mostly from Central America that are in Guadalajara trying to get further north and they're living outside. We've provided them with clothing and shoes and blankets and food and the good news of the gospel. We will continue to do that. We have been planning just this last week particularly about the future of our outreach ministries. And in terms of our welcoming in the foreigner, we want to do more here. We'll be developing plans more here at our church to welcome in the strangers and the foreigners, those who are new either to the country or to our community. What, what can we provide to them that they need? Long term, we're even talking about the possibility of uh, temporary housing for them, of legal assistance and other ways that we can be welcoming and comforting and supporting to those who are foreigners in our midst. And we are always open to more ways that we can do that. We as a church, just as we as individuals should, do all we can to show hospitality, hospitality to foreigners, aliens, immigrants, and strangers. Not just because it's the right thing to do, but because Jesus told us to do it in very specific terms. It is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that means it's not optional. 
no matter what anyone else might say. Amen.